the word of God that comes to each of us today is from Jesus, who says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay to God what is God's. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace be to each of you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Pharisees and the Herodians do what we sometimes do. We come to God, to Jesus, with a question that's a non-question. It's a question that is a non-question. It's not truthful. It's an evasion. What do, I mean? what do I mean here? They come to Jesus and say, is it okay? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the czar, to Caesar, or not? Right? It's a question that's not meant to get advice. Really, Jesus, what should we do? We're not really sure, right? They're not wondering if they should change their minds about paying taxes. If they should, on one hand, like the Herodians, pay their taxes because some of it funnels back to them and they support the Roman colonization of the land? Or should they be like the Pharisees and the Zealots who say, don't pay your taxes because we want an independent state of Israel? They already have their minds made up, don't they? This is a question that will just divide the followers of Jesus. If Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes, then they will send him to the Romans because he's guilty of insurrection. If he says, pay your taxes, half of his followers are like, oh, no, thank you. I thought you were a revolutionary. They know that this is a dividing question. And we have so many dividing questions today, don't we, in our world? So many, right? Our nation is literally split down the middle. Right? Ask, like, uh, do black lives matter? When someone answers that question, they will be on one side of a divide or another. And if you counter with, do black lives in the womb matter, that will put you on the other side, right? These are questions that are important, for sure. The question that the Pharisees and the Herodians ask is important. The question, who's right, the state of Israel or Palestine? That is an important question, one that's driven into our ears by the events of the world, right? It's an important question, and how you answer it will put you on one side, conservative, or the other side, liberal. And many of us try to stay neutral because, well, i got other things to do, right? So we're in one of those camps. Well, this is a non-question. These people come to Jesus not because they're wondering. So this is Tuesday. If you look in your bulletin, Matthew 22, this is Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus knows, as I said last week, in two days come nightfall, they're going to arrest him. He knows the timeline. They are going to give him an unjust trial and put him to death. He knows this. They aren't really wondering, I don't know, should I pay taxes? I can't make up my mind, right? So they come with this non-question. How do we know it's a non-question? Because of the way Matthew describes it. He says this, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, or as Mark says, how to destroy him in his words. And they sent their disciples along with the Herodians. So these are people who are not on the same side. It's like sending uh, right-wing and left-wing folks together to get an answer. Because one group will leave happy, one group won't. Right? And so they come together, Pharisees and Herodians, and they say what is actually true. Is this true of Jesus? Teacher, 
we know that you're, you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Is that true? Everybody? Absolutely it's true. Here's the interesting thing. To them, it's a lie. They're saying what's true, but they're lying about it. They come to flatter Jesus. They come to butter him up. They try to get him on their side, put his defenses down so they can trap him, right? They're telling a lie, even though it's the truth. Anyway, and then Jesus says, tell us, they say, tell us what you think. Should we pay taxes to to Caesar or not? And Jesus is aware of their evil. And he says, why do you put me to the test, you actors, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denaro, right? A denarius, where we get our word for, uh, for money in many languages. They bring it to him. Now, some people think as they read this, is it actually against their rules to have a denarius in the temple? This is the temple of the living God, right? It is the holy place of God where the Gentiles can come and pray, where the men and the women can come and offer sacrifices and pray to the God of heaven. Is it okay to bring in a denarius? They probably had rules that said, no. Well, why not? You probably know this, so I'll just review it. A denarius had a picture of Caesar on it. Tiberius Caesar. On one side of this coin, it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So on one side, it's a picture of Caesar. It says, this is the son of God. On the other side, it has a description that says, Pontifus Maximus, which I know you know your Latin, which means something like high priest, right? The one who represents all of the Roman Empire to God. He's our guy, right? So is it okay to bring this picture, this coin with the picture of Caesar into the temple? Maybe not, according to their rules. But Jesus says, bring it, and they bring it into the temple. And then he says, well, show me whose likeness and inscription is it. And of course, they say it's Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And if he had stopped right there, he would have offended half of the people that was his fan base, pay the tax. But does he stop there? No, by no means. He says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he says, and pay to God that which is God's. Pay to God what is God's. So let me ask you, is anything Caesar's that is not God's? Does Caesar have anything that God does not have? Come on now. Who's the king of king and lord of lords? It ain't Caesar, right? So Jesus is doing something. He is trumping Caesar. He's saying Caesar is, Caesar is not the issue. There is something else that is the issue. So Jesus takes a non-question, should we pay? and turns it into a statement which becomes a piercing question for each of us. Render to God's what is God's. So the piercing question is, am I paying God what I should? Right? Am I paying God what I owe God? Kind of sobering, isn't it? Well, What do we owe God? And we can all think of what we've been taught and learned and read and heard. Jesus will say it just a little bit lower. If you had your Bible out, uh, Matthew 22, someone else will ask him, what's the greatest commandment? What is 
the biggest thing that we should do, and, and you know the answer, love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. And interesting enough, he goes on and, and takes that reading, but ramps it up. We'll look at that uh, coming soon. That is not the only thing that we owe God. But we do owe God that to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. strength. As Lutherans, we'll, we'll look at the whole Bible and say, what we owe God is to fear him, to love him, and to trust him above all things. Right? You've heard that. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. That's what we owe God. So I guess a, a question for us is, this pierces us. Am I giving to God all that I ought to? Am I fearing him, loving him, trusting him above everything else? The, uh, in the Old Testament, there were competing gods, right? There was Yahweh, which when you see capital letters in the Old Testament, Lord, that is the name Yahweh. But that was not the only, quote-unquote, God. There were other gods out there, right? There was Molech, who was in the land when they came, and uh, Molech was the one that you should sacrifice your children to. What a great God, right? There was uh, Baal, uh, there was Asherah, uh, and for, to appease those gods, you had to do certain things um, that do not bear repeating. So in the Old Testament, there was these gods that were competing. But if you look at Psalm 96, this is a song that says all these gods are worthless. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. So an idol can't bear the weight that we give it. In the Old Testament, there was many idols, right? Uh, that opposed Yahweh, the one true God. But that was just back then, right? Those idols are only back then, right? Back then, you would take a piece of wood and you would carve it in the image of your, of your God and cover it with silver or gold. So wood, silver, gold, the things that we make, right? And then you would bow down and worship this God, Dagon, or whatever it is. You would give it your allegiance to try to get something from this God. Children or money or protection, something, right? And that's only back then, right? <laughs> All right, Ken's back there. He's like, he knows where I'm going. Of course not. We know that our good friend Martin Luther said a God, an idol, is anything that we fear or love or trust above God. And how do we know if we have an idol in our hearts? Well, first, first of all, I'll just tell you, you do. Right? John Calvin said, and I say this as apart from the good news of Jesus, we do. John Calvin, the other reformer, said, our heart is an idol factory. We love to make idols. Anything that we can cling on to that will satisfy us or protect us, uh, give us joy, give us happiness, even if it's fleeting, right? Back then, it was wood covered with gold. Today, it's plastic and electronics and lithium covered with glass. Y'all know what I mean, right? That also can be something we worship something where we find our meaning, screens that give us an identity that is not our true identity. All right, let me just move on here. Jeremiah tells us about these idols. They're not good, and they're in our hearts, and we need rescuing from them. And this is Jeremiah 10, 14. I'd like you to raise your hand if this also describes you because it does describe me. Jeremiah 10, 14 says this. It doesn't say women, but it does, listen, it says, every man is stupid 
and without knowledge. All right. In the, in the boat, it's a good thing it doesn't say women, right? It says every man is stupid and without knowledge. It's like, oh, that kind of hurts. Well, in the context, he's talking about those who worship idols, those who try to get everything they need out of life from something that is not God. It goes on and says, every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. Is there a breath in an idol? No, of course not. We made it, right? And we worshipped it. He says, they are worthless, a work of delusion, and they shall perish. So think for a moment. There is no breath in these things, and yet they are worshipped, right? It seems very silly, but these are things that capture us, right? Things that we are so afraid of losing. Let me just make one hit home. Back then, they worshipped the, the Baals, Baals, I think is the way to say it, kind of a hard word to say. Uh, it was a god of the sea, the Baal. Perhaps here in Buffalo, there is another god called the Baals, right? That we fear are going to lose, that we love and crave watching more than anything else, that we trust in to make us happy. Maybe that applies to you. Maybe it doesn't. But you can see they're everywhere, right? They don't have to be what you see in the Bible because if you fear, love, and trust it above God, it is an idol. It can even be good things, right? Like your family. Your kids can be an idol, right? It can be the priority of your life, and they ought to be number two or three, but they ought not be number one, right? So you get it. I think we all understand this. But here's my point. It says the idols of the world have no breath. It says our God is not like that. How could Jeremiah say that? How could Jeremiah say, our God is not like the idols who have no breath? What? He's a living God. When Jeremiah wrote this, was God literally breathing? No. Children's message talked about how God is king of kings. He can direct rulers. One ruler that he directed was, as we get ready for the nativity, I mentioned this, Caesar, who said, I need to collect some taxes, so I'm going to have a, a census, so I know who's where, and so I can get their money, right? He wasn't just wondering how many people there were out there. He's wondering how much money he could get. Did God use that to send Joseph and Mary down to Bethlehem? Absolutely. My point is this. Our God actually does have breath. Hallelujah, right? So back to Matthew, Jesus says, Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is on the coin, the dinero? Whose is it? They say Caesar. Well, the question that comes to us is whose likeness and inscription is on us? It's not Caesar. It's God, right? And we could say in Jesus, Jesus, the one who took on our flesh. Our God, our God breathes, right? That should be good news. Our God breathes. Jesus came to earth to do what we couldn't do, right? What couldn't we do? Once you're in debt, you can't work your way out of it, right? Pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. All right, you can do that happily, right? You can happily pay your taxes, right? I know you do. Come on now, help me out. Okay, you can do it happily or unhappily, right? You can do that. Pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay to the IRS what is the IRS's, right? Whether you like it or not. Can you pay to God what is God's? 
No, yes and no. No ourselves, because we're in debt. We can't get out. That's why Jesus came, and the one who, the God who became breath said, pay to God what is God's. He's the one who also, with his last breath, said, it is finished. And he died with his arms open for us, right? It is finished. He died, he took our sins into the tomb, and he rested there. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. So our God now, Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Lord, has breath. And what does he do with that breath? He intercedes for us. Everything that we could not pay, paid. Father, it is paid. I have paid the wrath that is due the world. I have paid the price that the idols wanted. I have paid death. That's good news. So pause for a moment, and we'll, as we'll funnel down towards the end here. The Pharisees came, and the Herodians came, and they tried to trick Jesus. They tried to evade him. Question, so what do the Pharisees in this moment, and the Herodians in this moment, what do they owe God, practically speaking? Not just yes in their heart, but something else. In the context here, uh, they are to respond to Jesus, right? Not just to be like, mental ascent. They are to respond to Jesus. This whole, I, I encourage you to read Matthew 21 and 22, but part of it is this. There's the two sons, remember? There's a son who said, no, I'm not going to do what you say, Father, God, right? These are the tax collectors and the prostitutes. These are the idolaters of the world. And then they changed their mind and said, okay, actually, I'm going to do it, and did it. And there's the others who say, I'll do it, I'll do it. These are the ones who are Pharisees who say, yeah, I'm all good. I don't need to do anything else because I said I would do it. I showed up in church. I showed up with the right clothes, whatever it is. I grew up as a son of Abraham. I was baptized in the church. Fine, right? They said they'd do it, but they didn't do it. Well, do what? What are we talking about? Repent at the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus. Repent and believe, right? A slice of this that took place in the world as, as the gospel spread is as Libby read this, all the way uh, through Upper and Lower Greece, this is the church in Thessalonica. This message that Jesus came to, with his dying breath to pay for us, that message changes us, right? If you look at 1 Thessalonians 1, it won't go all through it, but here's what happened. It says that this message, the report about you, is that you, idolaters, former idolaters, turned to God from idols. How and why? To serve the living and true God, the one who breathes, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This breathing God does stuff. He comes to the world and saves us. And then as you read that chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, like check out the words that are about their life. Like faith, hope, love, the joy of the Holy Spirit. You think that changed their lives, turning from idols to the living God? You think that will change our lives as we, as, as we repent of the idol factory in our heart? Or as we, just to, to pull in our previous hymn, as we pray, this is verse 3 of God of Grace, cure, cure your children's warring madness. 
Bend our pride to your control. Shame our wanton selfish gladness, rich in things and poor in soul. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, lest we miss your kingdom's goal. As we repent, because it's a gift given to us to repent. So, Jesus is coming back on a white horse. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in this time, he gives us the opportunity to turn from idols, not of our own ability, but by his good news. And to say that Jesus, my breath, is your breath. And so we end. Would you turn back in your bulletin to the very first page? We end with this. Let's sing the first, let's, let's read the first couple of lines of Psalm 96. Oh, sing to Jesus Christ a new song. Sing to Jesus Christ all the earth. And everyone, sing to Jesus Christ. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. One more. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among the peoples. For great is Jesus Christ, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. In the name of Jesus, amen.